0: Well, good morning to all of you again. It's good to see you. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in those appropriate songs of worship, getting us ready for our pastors this morning. Well, if uh, you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 5. We'll be continuing our study in the book of Acts, again, looking at the highlights of the church, not necessarily going through every single chapter. But before we start looking at Acts, chapter 5, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful to You for the power of Your Word and for how it so clearly demonstrates the greatness of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we study Your Word this morning, that that would be apparent to us, that we would understand the church is all about You, and that we would live in light of that. We pray, Lord, for humility as we look at this text and as we see what You have for us there. And we pray that, Lord, you would be glorified, you would be honored as we study. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The topic of authority can be tricky to navigate in our day. While we recognize that some form of authority structure is necessary to keep things in order, most people would rather have the level of authority upon us kept to a minimum because we don't want other people telling us what to do. We would rather be left to our own devices rather than being under the authority of others. Now, while we enjoy this hands-off approach to leadership when we're under leadership, when we are given responsibility, when we're placed in a position of leadership, we often prefer to have more authority in our hands because we have our preferences. We want things run our way. One of the hardest things to do is to be in a spot where you used to have authority, but now you're sitting under the authority of someone else and you have to listen to them. Since you're no longer in charge, you must submit yourself to the authority of the person who's in charge. An example of this in my own life is found in CBM camp. I, I just graduated from seminary and I returned to the junior high camp of CBM ministry. Now up until that time, I was serving as the junior high director for five out of the last six years. But when I returned to CBM junior high camp, they didn't need another director. They already had enough directors, so I just returned to the ranks of a junior high counselor. And I hadn't counseled middle school kids in a long time, and that was humbling. But I think it was even more humbling for me to place myself under the authority of the director's who were already in charge, because I knew how to run the show. I knew what to do. I knew how everything was supposed to look like. And yet, even though I had the clout, even though I had the experience, I knew that in order for us to honor God in the best way possible, I had to submit myself to the authority of the leaders who were over me. A change in authority requires a recognition of the new authority. That has been placed over us. And that is what we see in Acts 5 this morning. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying through the book of Acts and we've seen in Acts 1 and in Acts 2 how Jesus' church was established. We learned that as a church, we have been established by Jesus himself to be a witness of his life, his death, and his resurrection and the hope that is to come. We saw that God kept his promise to send the Holy Spirit. And he did so in order to signal that we as a church, we hold out hope to the rest of the world because forgiveness of sins and being in heaven can only be accessed through Jesus Christ. Today, as we look at Acts 5, we see the power that is found in Jesus' name and how he establishes authority through the church so that all may know the salvation that can be found in no other name but his We will see how Jesus establishes authority through two events that reveal his authority over the temple. Two events that reveal Jesus' authority over the temple. The first event that we will observe is the purifying judgment. The purifying judgment. Verse 1 to 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, He laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke begins by introducing us to a man named Ananias with the word but. Normally, we would just ignore this word and continue reading because many of us are familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We teach it to our kids in Sunday school by using Ananias and Sapphira as an object lesson. Don't lie, kids. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira because if you lie to God, you die. No, not really. But um, you know, this is not entirely true, but it's not entirely wrong either. Right? But there is something more to this story than don't lie. There's so much more to this story than don't lie. And we'll explore that more together in a little bit. The word but, it provides us with a contrast. Ananias is being held in contrast to someone. So who is he being held in contrast to? Well, if you just look up to Acts chapter 4, you'll see at the very end, verse 36, Ananias is being held in contrast to a man named Barnabas. You see, in response to Peter's two sermons and the public showdown that went on between the apostles and the religious leaders, the church, it continued to grow, and they demonstrated their growth and their unity as one body, one church, that proclaimed the fact that God is able to bring everyone together to one place In sharing together, right? And they did that regardless of ethnicity. They did that regardless of social status. They helped each other meet needs when they were together. When someone had a need, someone in the church would share with the one who had need, either by reaching into their own pocket and giving them some money or by selling a piece of property so that they could meet that need with the money that came from it. And so Luke, he holds up Barnabas as an example par excellence. Barnabas understands why the church exists. He understands the mission of the church and how it needs to go forth to the rest of the world. He also understands the importance of unity within the church. So he sells his land, and he brings all the proceeds to the apostles in order to care for those in the church who have needs. Now, when you compare the accounts describing Barnabas and Ananias' actions, one glaring difference is apparent. Both men sold a piece of property. Both men bring the proceeds of those sales, and they lay it at the apostles' feet. But Ananias kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. In other words, Ananias and his wife decided together to sell the piece of land and give only a portion of it to God while saying that what they had given was the entire portion of what they received for the land. The word that we see here for kept back or keep back is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament in the story of Achan in Joshua 7, when Achan took or kept back some of the treasures that were supposed to belong to the Lord. In Joshua 6, 17, what we saw is that all the things that were under the ban in the city were supposed to belong to God. And so by taking treasure, Achan was stealing from God. And what we'll see in a little bit is that Ananias' sin is similar to Achan's sin, but more on that later. Now, Peter, he indicates Ananias' deception in verses 3 to 4. He says, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Unlike God the Father, Satan is not omnipresent, He is not everywhere present. He can only occupy one place in time. By asking why Satan has filled Ananias' heart, Peter recognizes with the help of the Holy Spirit that Satan is presently active in trying to influence Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit while at the same time recognizing that the responsibility for lying is Ananias's alone. Though Satan influence ananias tempting ananias in his heart he couldn't make ananias lie ananias chose to allow satan's temptation to entice him on his own he chose not to run away from sin not to run away from temptation but instead he chose to sin he chose to pretend like he cared about the church Notice that Peter does not judge Ananias for keeping back some of of his earnings from selling the land. He does not judge Ananias for choosing only to give a portion of what he received from the sale of the land. He judges Ananias for what's in his heart. Peter points out the fact that Ananias did not need to sell his land. The church did not require its members to sell their property. Not only that, Ananias was free to do whatever he wanted to with the proceeds from that sale. The church did not require its members to give, its, to, give people, to give their money to the church. Ananias was free to do whatever he wanted with that money. But Ananias chose to come to the apostles and tell them that he sold his land in order to give all of the proceeds to the church. Peter is calling Ananias out for lying to God and pretending to be holy and spiritual when he was really just stealing glory from God. Ananias and Sapphira, they set themselves up to try and look like Barnabas. They see how Barnabas was held in high regard by the church for giving all the money from his land sale to the church. And so they wanted to do something similar. They wanted to go up to the apostles and say, here is all the money from our land sale. So that when the rest of the church heard of it, when they saw it, they would look at them just like they looked at Barnabas and say, wow, look at Ananias and Sapphira. Look at how godly they are. Look at how spiritual they are. I want to be like them. Instead of making the church all about God and his glory, all about Jesus Christ, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to make the church all about them and their own glory. And so like Achan, they were stealing what was rightly God's and giving it to themselves. Now, why was this act... So important that Satan himself filled the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to tempt them to steal God's glory. If the church is supposed to be all about Jesus, if they were to show the power and the authority of Jesus' name, and it is found out by the church and the outside world that Ananias and Sapphira lied, and that they had a false spirituality, a false holiness then the church and the rest of the observing world would look at that and say, power of Jesus' name? No way. The church, it's a fake, has no authority. It has no power. There is no power in Jesus' name because Jesus could not keep his glory from being stolen. And that leads us to a very important application point. When you serve in the church... Check your heart and make sure the ministry that you serve in is not about you. It's not about you. Don't get me wrong. I want for you to take responsibility. I want for you to take ownership of your ministries. I definitely want that. I encourage that. But every single one of us, me included, we all have to be careful. I have to be careful. My fellow pastors have to be careful. The elders ministry leaders, every single servant of this church, we have to be careful in case we steal glory from God and we make ministry all about us. We can do that by talking about all the work that we've poured into our ministries, all the resources that we spent on our ministries and all the sacrifices that we've made for our ministries when we make it all about us we steal glory from the lord and for some of us we creep into glory stealing by accident it's unintentional we get a little caught up in all that we've done for the church and we want our say we want our recognition we accidentally elevate ourselves and our ministry over other ministries or even our fellow coworkers we just have to be careful we have to examine our hearts to make sure that this is not about us. Perhaps there are people here who knowingly draw attention to themselves because they find their identity in what they do, and they take pride in what they do. If that's you, be careful. Be careful. Don't allow for your pride to steal glory from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we all must be careful. We must examine our hearts and make sure that when we are serving our Lord, we're not doing so in a manner that feels our own pride. We have to check our hearts and make sure that we are truly doing things for God's glory and his glory alone, not just giving lip service to his glory when really all we want is eyes on us. We don't want to make our ministries something that we mold into our own image. Rather, we want for our ministries to reflect the image of God. So let us strive to do ministry with pure motives. Going back to Ananias. Ananias, he hears Peter's indictment against him. And as he hears it, he falls down. And he dies. And great fear comes over all who heard that he died because he was trying to steal glory from God. And so what we see in verse 6, the young men, they got up and they covered him up. And carried, carrying him out, they buried him. Notice the hastiness of this burial. The young men and everyone present recognized that Ananias received a divine judgment for his sin. That he was the object of divine curse. And they needed to bury him immediately so that, again, Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, they do not defile the land. You see, if we were here at church, someone openly sinned in front of us, and then they fell down dead, wouldn't you be scared? Right? You would want them out of the church immediately, right? Because the thought is, uh-oh, if God's not going to have mercy on this person, he's not going to have mercy on me either, right? I've got to get, get out of here. Right? So that's why they quickly grab Ananias. They go and bury him. They don't want his curse present anymore. Sapphira, she gets her own chance to tell the truth as she goes into the church three hours later. She doesn't know what happened to her husband, and she goes up to Peter. But she goes up to Peter because she wants that recognition. She knows her husband went earlier to give the money to Peter. So she goes up. She wants to see some recognition. She wants to see what Peter will say to her. And that's why it says in verse 8, And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. You notice that Luke doesn't care about the money. Luke does not care about reporting the amount of the money because the money is not important. The money is not important. The issue that is here is the conspiracy to steal glory away from God. Rather than the money. So Sapphira confirms the price point to Peter, and Peter says to her, verse 9, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Just like her husband, Sapphira lies to the Holy Spirit. She puts him to the test to see if he will do anything about the theft of his glory. And so she, too, is the object of divine wrath and is buried. And this brings up a very important point for us. What we see here is that when it comes to his glory, when it comes to justice, God holds men and women up the same. There is no distinction between the two, right? Ananias died because he lied. Sapphira died because she lied. Well, actually, because they stole glory, right? Because they stole glory. That's why. God does not play favorites when it comes to justice. He's perfectly just. It doesn't matter whether you're rich, whether you're poor, what ethnicity you are, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman. It doesn't matter. He's perfectly just. Everyone in the church and everyone in the vicinity, they get this message. They understand that they must honor the Lord, that they must respect Him and be in awe of him, which is why it says that great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. By the way, it's humbling to remember God's mercy post-Ananias and Sapphira. God extends incredible mercy to you and to me on a moment-by-moment basis. How many times do we sin in a day, right? whether it's thought, deed, attitude? How many times do we sin? God could rightly strike us dead where we stand, where we sit, every time we sin, every time. We deserve that, but he doesn't because he's extending mercy. He's giving us an opportunity to repent. We cannot take that mercy for granted. Now, some of you may be wondering, why doesn't God continue to kill people who steal his glory now? if it was so serious that he needed to kill Ananias and Sapphira in the early church. By the way, this is another reason why we can't read Acts as a model. Otherwise, we'd have dead bodies all over the place. As Satan is trying to derail the church in its infancy, God needed to make a point. He needed to demonstrate that there is power in Jesus' name, that the church really is all about Jesus. And so... In this show of divine power, he makes his point in a big way so that the rest of the church and the world by extension understands that there is power in the church. And because God makes this point in such a demonstrative way, he doesn't need to do it again because the point has been made and the message has been received. The church is all about Jesus and it's not about anything else. Or anyone else. It's all about Jesus. And the indicator that this message is received is seen in verses 12 to 16. The apostles, they continue to do many signs and wonders. Again, they do signs to get people to pay attention. They do wonders to get people to wonder, what is God doing? And they do all these things in Solomon's portico, a large porch, facing the court of the Gentiles on the eastern side of the temple. They do this in the temple. Everybody knows where the church meets. Everybody knows who the apostles are. And those who were unbelievers, they did not dare associate with them because they were afraid of the church. Yet they still respected the church. Luke says in verse 13 none of them, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Even though though the people knew that you don't mess with the church, you don't pretend like you're a part of the church and that it's all about you, even though they know that there's danger in that, they still respected the church. And perhaps it was because some of them were beginning to recognize that God was behind it. Now, even though people were trying to keep their distance from the church, God continued to add both men and women to their number. God continued to grow the church in spite of the fact that he had that purifying judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, right? If you heard that people die when they come to this church, would you come? Probably not, right? But that's the power of Jesus' name. They recognize the fact that God is behind this, that they were sinners, that they needed to repent, that they needed to come to the Lord. And that's why even despite that purifying judgment, The church continued to grow. The respect for the church and for the power in Jesus' name was so high that many people from the cities around Jerusalem came into the city. They came into the temple grounds, not for the temple, not for Jewish religious worship, but for the church. They were coming to see the church. And some people believed that the power in the church was so strong that they lined the streets up with cots and pallets, so that when Peter was walking through the city, perhaps his shadow would fall on these sick people, these poor, these rich, who needed healing. Because they thought that there was so much power that Peter's shadow, just by passing over them, could heal them. Now, the scripture does not indicate whether or not people actually were healed because Peter's shadow touched them. It could happen, but it doesn't indicate that, right? So we, won't have to, we don't have to land on that. But the point here is that the people recognize that there is great power in the church, and they came to the church in the recognition of the power of Jesus Christ. By judging Ananias and Sapphira immediately, for their attempt to steal his glory. Jesus demonstrates the importance of the purity of his church through his purifying judgment. The church reveals the power of Jesus' name to the world. And for that reason, Jesus takes a stand to show that his bride must be pure because his bride is all about him. And that leads us to... The second event, which reveals Jesus' authority over the temple, and that is the pronouncement of authority. The pronouncement of authority. The actions of the apostles and the popularity of the church do not go unnoticed by the high priests and the Sadducees, the ones who run the temple. So they seize the apostles and they throw them into public jail. Throwing the apostles, all 12 of them, into public jail is a public statement by the high priests and the Sadducees. They're telling the apostles, they're telling anyone who saw or heard of the imprisonment of the apostles, the church and Jesus have no power. We just threw them in jail. We have all the authority. But what do we see in verses 19 to 20? During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. God sends an angel to the apostles, takes them out of jail at night, and tells the apostles to go back out to the temple to preach the message of Christ, just as they had been doing the day before. And so, it says, that the apostles entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Basically, the apostles are saying, the religious leaders, they may have thrown us into prison yesterday afternoon, but they have no power or authority over us. We're back, and we will continue to tell you of Jesus and his great power. As we can see from the latter half of verse 21 all the way up to 34, uh, 24, the news of the apostles being freed from prison has not yet reached the ears of the religious leaders or the temple guards. The religious leaders, they send the, temple, the officers of the temple guard to the prison in order to bring the apostles out before the entire council of religious leaders, that is, the high priests, the other priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, in order to confront them. But what the officers find when they get to the prison is that though everything is quite secure, the apostles are no longer in the prison. They get to the prison, the guards are still in place, the gates are all locked up. When they get inside, where are the apostles? Where do they go? As we see in verse 24, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests they were greatly perplexed. They had no idea how to interpret this. What are they supposed to do with these men who just vanished out of a secure prison? How are they supposed to understand this? And so as they're perplexed about this, as they're processing this, wondering what this means, someone comes up to them and says to them, the apostles are back in the temple and they're teaching the people. And when we look at verse 26, we'll see it's the balance of power is clearly in favor of the apostles. Because it says, and the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them, that is the apostles, back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. The temple guard, they're all afraid to lay hands on the apostles because they recognize that somehow these apostles got out. These apostles, they they have some authority behind them. So they escort the apostles to the council in order to be questioned without violence because... They know that if they were to be violent against the apostles, that the people would be violent towards them. And so there's fear. There's fear because they recognize there's power here that we cannot mess with. And so when the apostles get to the council, the high priest, he speaks to them. And look at what he says here in verse 28. He says, we gave you Strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The strict orders that the high priest refers to are orders from Acts 4, 18-20, where the religious leaders command Peter and John to no longer speak in the name of Christ. And at that time, Peter and John say, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. But here, in verse 28, the high priest, he reminds the apostles of what they were told. And he notes that you are still teaching. You're still filling Jerusalem with this teaching. And you intend to bring the responsibility for Jesus' death on us. Now, notice, the high priest does not want to recognize Jesus' name. He doesn't want to even mention Jesus' name, right? Because he says, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. He doesn't want to recognize Jesus. He doesn't want to acknowledge Jesus. And also, there's the fact that he conveniently forgets the fact that he, along with the other religious leaders and the crowds that they incited, say in Matthew 27, 25, His blood shall be on us and our children. The high priest is trying to deny that the name of Jesus has any power whatsoever, while at the same time trying to maintain innocence for Jesus' death, even though he and the council had worked together in order to have Jesus killed. The legitimacy of of the authority of the temple is rapidly slipping as the religious leaders lose their credibility and their popularity. And this showdown between the religious leaders and the apostles demonstrates the widening gap between the church and Israel. Israel used to be the exclusive vehicle through whom God revealed his plan. But now God is working through the church and it shows. While the showdown between the religious leaders and the apostles is similar to what happened in Acts 4, there is a massive difference. In 419, Peter leaves it up to the religious leaders to judge whether it is right for the apostles to listen to them or to God. But here, in 529, Peter completely removes the ability for the religious leaders to judge whether the apostles should listen to them or not. Essentially, they say to the religious leaders... You have demonstrated in your actions that you are fighting against God. Therefore, you do not get to make judgments anymore. We obey God, not you. Whereas the high priest refuses to acknowledge Jesus' name, Peter makes it clear that God has raised up Jesus, whom they all had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They are saying to the religious leaders, you tried to get rid of Jesus by killing him. You said that Jesus was cursed by putting him on a tree. But God raised him up from the dead and he reigns, Presently, with God as a prince and as a savior. And here at the temple, you offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. All of your sacrifices are worthless because Jesus's once for all sacrifice is the only means of forgiveness of sins. The one thing that you guys were good for, it's gone, it's done. You've lost your power. You're out. That's really harsh, isn't it? Peter's not done. Verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This final remark here in verse 32 is the, co- is the nail in the coffin for the religious leaders. The apostles are witnesses of all that God has done. Through Christ, They are witnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and they understand what God is doing through those events. They understand that salvation is found in no other name. And not only are the apostles witnesses of all these things that God is doing, but the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him, okay, he's given to those who obey him, he is also a witness as well. The signs and wonders that we saw in verse 12... And all the other things that the Holy Spirit has been doing through the apostles since Acts 2, they are all clear signs that the Holy Spirit has been given to the apostles, that he resides with the apostles. And so Peter, he points back to those evidences, and he says, the Holy Spirit is with us. And so he says to the religious leaders, God gave the Holy Spirit to us because we believed in Jesus and we obey. Since you do not believe in Jesus... Or obey God, right? They can't even get the obey God part right. You don't get the Holy Spirit. God is no longer with you, you are completely out. The religious leaders, they completely understand what Peter is saying to them, which is why it says here in verse 33. That when they heard what Peter said, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. This almost sounds like Acts 2. It almost sounds like Acts 2 where Peter, he gives his sermon and the people, the crowds, they hear his words. They were pierced to the heart and that led them to say, what must we do to be saved? But That's not what we see here. Because what we see here is that they were cut to the quick, or some of your Bibles might have a note that says cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart, and they intended to kill them. This time, the cutting to the heart doesn't lead to repentance. It leads to a desire to murder. And basically, Luke is saying, the inhibitions are all off. They're completely thrown off. The religious leaders, they wanted to kill the apostles, and they very well could have. They're in an enclosed room. They're in an enclosed room, and they're mad, and they want to destroy the apostles. But a Pharisee, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Gamaliel, he rescues the apostles because he acknowledges that it appears that God is behind the church. And for this reason, he brings up two recent movements as examples for the council to consider. He says in verse 35, Men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him he too perished and all those who followed him were scattered So what Gamaliel recognizes here is that these two men they were both trying to act like Messiah they were trying to gather people behind them claiming to be somebody claiming to be Messiah but what Gamaliel recognizes is that God cares so much about his Messiah that he will not allow for false Messiah movements to thrive. And so he will put an end to them, and the movement will fizzle out. And that's why Gamaliel says, verse 38 to 39, So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Whether or not Gamaliel was saved or not is unknown, but he cautions the council to consider their actions lest they be found fighting against God. And as we look at this passage from the outside, we can definitely see that the religious leaders were fighting against God. But that's not necessarily readily apparent to them in the moment, which is why you see in verse 40 a very odd response. They took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So Luke says that the council heeds Gamaliel's advice. And yet, when they call the apostles back in the room, they flogged them. They whipped them and ordered them not to speak in Jesus' name anymore before they released them. Now, granted, Gamaliel did not say that the council should not do anything to the apostles. But it doesn't really seem like the council is being careful, does it? Regardless, the actions of the council are important for us to consider. Up until this point, the church has not faced violent opposition to their teaching. They have not had to suffer physically for the name of Christ. And so, in a sense, the council is trying to to determine whether or not the movement is legitimate. Whether or not they're actually fighting against God. And they do so by ratcheting up the pressure. Gamaliel is Right. And God cares about his Messiah so much that he will put down rival movements. Let's see what the apostles in the church will do if they actually have to suffer for what they teach. And that's why they whip the apostles. That's why they flog the apostles. The apostles, they leave the council. But instead of tucking their tails in between their legs and running, they rejoice. They rejoice that they have been counted worthy to suffer shame for the sake of Jesus' name because they know that it means that they're doing their job. They remember that Jesus said, if the world hated him, they would surely hate his followers as well. Therefore, they don't lose heart at this trial. Rather, they're thankful that God would even consider them worthy to represent Christ in this way. So we see even in another way that the church is all about Christ. Because if it was all about the apostles, in their preservation, they probably would have kept their mouth shut wouldn't day. But they don't. Instead, they rejoice that they get to represent Christ in this way. And they keep on teaching and preaching. Right? They don't listen to the council. They listen to God instead. And every day, the apostles, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Whether it was in the temple or in homes, they did that. Every single day. See, the religious leaders, they try to exert their authority over the apostles one last time by flogging them and telling them, don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. But what the apostles demonstrate definitively is that the religious leaders no longer have any authority because they keep proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. The mission of the church, as outlined in Acts 1-8, is to be witnesses. And the apostles were supposed to begin with Jerusalem as they continue out to Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world. And so what we see here, what we've studied here today, is how God demonstrates the power of Jesus' name in Jerusalem. So that the religious leaders of Israel, and the, and the people in the capital, and everyone in the surrounding areas will understand that if you don't want to fight God, if you don't want to be found fighting against God, you need to be a part of the church. There is no other name by which you can be saved except Jesus's. That's the only way salvation is possible. If you're here today and you've not believed in Jesus Christ, and you've not turned away from your sins, know that God currently demonstrates mercy to you. He does not give you what you rightly deserve because of your sins. We all rightly deserve punishment for our sins because God, though he is loving, is also just. He upholds that justice. And because he must uphold that justice, he must punish sin. But God is also merciful, not giving us what we deserve rightly in the moment. We understand that, right, from the account of Ananias and Sapphira. He didn't withhold mercy then because he needed to prove a point. But he has extended that mercy to you now. Because God loved us. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the, on the cross and to rise up from the grave three days later. And as a result, Jesus is able to be our substitute if we believe in him. That God is, is, And that he does so because then God is rightly able to judge the sins of mankind while at the same time offering salvation by grace. And that salvation is available to you today by God's mercy if you will take it. That offer of God's mercy. Again, God withholding what we rightly deserve is not available forever. So I plead with you. I plead with you. Believe in Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sins while God is still merciful. For those of you who have believed upon Jesus Christ and you have repented of your sins, this reminder of the power of Jesus' name and his authority can be a great encouragement to us as we are reminded of what God can do in his sovereignty. Though Israel has not lost her place in God's redemptive plan, God works through the church exclusively at this present time in order to accomplish his purposes. If he is behind us, we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to fear. We can be bold. We can be courageous, even when it seems like the rest of the culture, when it seems like the society is working to silence the message of the church. As long as we are acting in obedience to our Lord, we will not fail in our mission, even if it appears that we are being silenced. God will not be silenced. And the name of Jesus will continue to be proclaimed, just as it always has, from the beginning of the church to now, until the day when Christ comes again. So do not lose heart. Press on, knowing that God is behind us and that he sends his word forth and he always accomplishes his purposes. His name will be known in all the nations and there will be a great and wonderful day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The authority struggles that we see today are often a result of sinful man fighting against sinful man for supremacy over one another. But in the case of Jesus and his church versus everyone else, this fight for authority that we've studied here today in Acts 5 is not a result of sinful man fighting sinful man against uh, for authority, but it is a definitive statement made by the representatives of the Prince and Savior Jesus Christ the rightful king of Israel establishes his authority and he calls on all who want forgiveness of sins to follow after him, not the broken religious system of the law. And this morning we saw how Jesus established his authority in the events of the purifying judgment and the pronouncement of his authority. Knowing the power that is in Jesus' name and the fact that this is all about him, and that God sovereignly works the church. We as the church can have every confidence that as long as we seek to serve God in obedience and in purity that we will not fail in our mission to be a witness. We may suffer for his name. Will it be the same as the apostles? That's unclear whether it will be to the same extent as the apostles, whether we have that privilege, but regardless of whether we suffer or not, let us be committed to making the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, known in all aspects, in all areas of our life. Let that permeate our lives until the Lord takes us home where he comes again. Let's pray. Our Father, as we study this passage, we cannot help but walk away understanding the fact that the church is all about Christ. It's all about him. It's all about you, and it's all about your glory. And as we see that, may we be challenged to examine our own hearts, to make sure that we have not stolen your glory, that we remain focused on you and not ourselves. And if we have done so, we pray for forgiveness for that. And you would help us to realign ourselves quickly so that all glory goes to you. We pray that you would embolden us and strengthen us and give us courage to speak about the power of Jesus' name to those who are in our lives. Give us the courage to be witnesses in the small little areas of our lives, but also by actually going out and telling people of what Christ has done. May you embolden us in this task. Give us strength and courage to do these things. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in everything. And we do so in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.